So today, um, I had so much fun preaching about the resurrection last week, I thought we'd stay in it a little bit longer. So, um, And it really it was because uh, I got through about half my sermon last week, and I realized I, writ the whole, I had written the whole thing. So, 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 um, so it was kind of, so I was like, we need to continue on this a bit more. And I, and I had even several people talking to me later and they were just like, you know, you know, it just never thought about, um, we need to think about the resurrection more. So they said, like, we need to think about it more. And I never really have gone deep onto it. And so I was like, well, why don't we do a deep dive into the resurrection? Paul, he did a deep dive in the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a whole chapter devoted to the significance of the resurrection. So we're going to spend a, a few weeks um, looking at the resurrection, considering the significance of it, the importance of it, uh, and hopefully uh, be able to increase our understanding and our appreciation of the place of resurrection in our faith. And, the, and, um, and so my hope is at the end of it that your assurance would be strengthened, that your joy in the gospel would just be increased that your wonder and awe of God and his, what he has done in Jesus and what he promises for you would just be, would just, uh, would just take over your hearts and minds. And that's, uh, that's uh, my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for you as we go over the, the next weeks, as we dive into uh, the significance of the resurrection. And so um, today we're going to begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. I apologize, I don't have the slides prepped to put it on the screen today, but you can find our passage on page 961 in the Pew Bible. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, uh, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain." On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Those ends the reading of God's holy word. Now, any any fan of professional football, and I grew up in Southern California, we didn't really do college football like you you'd be a USC fan or UCLA fan but who cared right and so um and so we're all about NFL and so and any fan of the NFL uh, knows a a famous story uh, from 1961 at the uh, at the beginning of training camp for the football team the Green Bay Packers who were still stinging from their last season's championship loss to the Philadelphia Eagles where they blew a lead in the second half 
And, uh, and so the coach, to kick off their preparation for the coming season, Vince Lombardi, held up a familiar object and said, this gentleman is a football. Now that story is bordering on cliche, if not the very poster of cliches itself, because it has been told so many times. But it is cliche because it, whenever you get into that and you think about it, it, always, it, 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 it results in this kind of hand-to-forehead movement as you realize that you have forgotten the most fundamentals, the most, the most basic aspects of whatever it is that you're dealing with. And here we are dealing with the faith, with Christianity, with the gospel. Paul is writing to a church in Corinth who has a whole host of serious problems. Chapter 15 is near the end of this very long letter. Remember, we call it a book. This was a letter that Paul wrote. Didn't have chapter numbers initially. It was just a big, long letter. All right, And we apply chapters to it. This is chapter 15 of a letter. I've written some letters, but not 16 chapters worth of a letter in one shot. But here we're towards the end of this very long letter where Paul has addressed a lot of different issues. And there is a specific problem that Paul is addressing in this chapter, which is that some in the church in Corinth don't believe in bodily resurrection for a variety of reasons we'll go into later on another Sunday. But Paul's remedy for that, and I would even argue that his remedy for many of the problems and the issues that Corinth has been dealing with, uh, is, uh, is to have his own Lombardi moment. To say, this, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. And to deny the resurrection is to deny the gospel itself. For Paul, for the New Testament, uh, and, 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 and for us in the church, the resurrection is not an issue of just neat miracles or fascinating trivia about our favorite person. Resurrection is fundamental to Christianity itself. And so Paul makes clear in this passage at least two things. First, that the gospel is the life of the church. And secondly, that resurrection is inseparable from the gospel itself. And we'll deal with each of those this morning. And so the gospel is the life of the church. And here in verse 1, Paul brings us back to the gospel basics. Luther said that the pastor's job is to um, uh, beat the gospel into the heads of his people regularly. So, he's he's quotable. So... But Paul says that that he says, look, we've been dealing with all these difficult issues, but I, w- I would remind you of one thing. Well, what one thing is that going to be, Paul? I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel that you believed, and the gospel in which you stand. Paul had come to Corinth, this metropolitan place of trade, He had proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. The people had responded to that good news. They had believed it. They had committed their lives to it. 
And they continue even now to follow the Lord, even if they do at this moment find themselves, you know, waste or even neck deep in problems, the gospel yet remains the firm footing for the church. And uh, and it always, uh, you know, it always, it should be encouraged if you're ever dealing with problems in the church. It's not that you go read the letter of Corinthians, the letter of Corinthians to feel better about yourself because you're like, well, we got problems. We don't have those problems. You can do that. But actually what encourages me is that he still calls them a church. Even though they have a bunch of messed up stuff going on, he still calls them to a church. And that's why he writes them because they are a church. And so it, remind, it also reminds us that we should be careful before we start saying that's a church and that's not a church. You got to be careful with your, how you define, uh, define that. Um, but much may have changed since Paul had left the Corinthian church. He had gone off, he had established a church, he had left, he had planted it, and he had gone on to do other planting work. There were all kinds of fights and schisms that were threatening to split the church apart. The culture could have been changing around them. The very makeup of the church could have been changing as people were coming to faith and entering into the church body. But what hadn't changed for the church was the gospel. And that is an important reminder for us. You know, lots of things have changed over the years. You know, say about, you know, Catherine's funeral. Jamie preached that because 25 years ago, Miss Catherine, when her husband passed away, came to him and said, I want you to preach my funeral. And then she she reminded him a few years ago and said, you know, make sure you you, you remember. I I told you you're going to preach my funeral. And then, then sure enough, you know, he preached the funeral, right? And um, now... And, and talking with Jamie, you know, he's, you know, he's got a whole host of memories about what things were like in the mid-90s at the church, right? A lot has changed <laughs> here since, uh, since then. Pastors, members <laughs> have changed. The sanctuary has changed. What has not changed? The gospel has not changed. The gospel that was proclaimed the gospel that was received and believed, the gospel in which we stand has not changed. The gospel then is, um, I just went camping, so I was thinking about this, is uh, we were looking up uh, Friday, Friday night, uh, and we were looking up at the, and you can, you, know, you can trace part of the Big Dipper over to the North Star. And so, um, and so we're tracing, looking at the North Star, and that's what the gospel is, isn't it? The gospel is, um, is the North Star. It's the thing by which we take our bearings. When we, uh, we went up into northwest Alabama recently to go do an orienteering course and teaching how to orient a map and with a compass and how to make a sundial, you know, and all this stuff, and, um, and one of the things that our, the instructor was uh, telling us is how um, it used to be a, a building code uh, that no building could be taller than the church steeple be, um, because, and this was, he's talking about a long time ago, um, but the reason, the reason it was is because uh, the church was supposed to be the highest point and kind of usually at the center of town. And so you would, if you wanted to know where you were, you would look to where the church was and you would find yourself and you would orient yourself to where the church is. 
Well, that, well, certainly culturally speaking, there's a metaphor there, and that's something that we've lost. <laughs> but also, uh, but, but for our purposes here, that is the gospel. The gospel is that point that we look to. It's our North Star. It's our, it's our North. It's where we look to to figure out where we're at and where we need to go. It's our point of orientation. And that's where Paul brings this church that's struggling, that's just got all kinds of problems. What does he do? He says, you got to get back to the gospel. Because, as he goes on, the gospel is what saves us. In verse 2, this gospel that was preached, this gospel that was received, the gospel in which they stand, the gospel is what is saving us. He reminds them that, that uh, these, these Christians, that what is saving them is not their factional leadership. It's not their spiritual gifts that they're fighting about. It is the grace of God. Now, some have thought that Paul may be adding a conditional statement here. They're saying, look, the grace of God saves you unless you don't believe right, unless you, you're, unless you believed and it was for nothing. Um, but if, it's, if he's saying then salvation is dependent upon your faith and whether your faith rises or falls, well, that's not actually what faith is. Faith is a channel through which grace passes. It's not, we're not saved by the strength or weakness of our faith. Well, what then is he saying? Well, he, what he means here is that the gospel is what saves. The gospel is what certainly saves us unless you go on uh, to say that you reject the resurrection. Because if you, if you reject the resurrection, then it doesn't matter what you believe. You believe in vain if you reject the resurrection. He's going to say that literally in, in, uh, in a little bit, which we won't look at this week, but we'll look at later. That, and, so, and so what he says in verse 2 actually connects with this later argument where he says, without the resurrection, our faith is in vain. And so, and so we, need, and we need this reminder that what saves us is not our moral goodness, it's not our strength of character, it's not our resolve to do better, it's not our personal conviction. What saves us from condemnation and judgment and the power of the devil is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And to have faith that is not in vain, a faith that holds fast to the gospel that one needs to, a faith that one needs in order to grasp the gospel, it, well, then we need to be very clear that the resurrection is inseparable from the gospel itself. And so we need to consider here the Paul, the, 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 Paul, the gospel that Paul received and delivered. He's talking a lot about the gospel. I want to remind you about the gospel. But what is the gospel, Paul? Well, Paul lays out for us a very particular definition of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. And his death and resurrection were according to the scriptures. And then, in his resurrection body... He appeared to many to certify and instruct and guide. It's important to see that this definition of the gospel is laid out in the summary form by the time of Paul, which would have been around the mid-50s A.D. That means that within 20 years of Christ's ministry, the gospel took this definite shape, that when someone asked what the gospel was, you would say that Jesus is the Christ who died for my sins, was buried and raised from the dead. 
And so that would really push back, if not debunk, the claims that say all this resurrection stuff was added many, many years later. Within, within, 20, within 20 years, you have a standard form of the gospel, a standardized summary of the gospel in a place that had no internet, no cell phones, there's no bullet points going out by emails out to the apostles to say, okay, this is what you say. That means you have an organic summary of the gospel that has risen up saying this is what the gospel is within 20 years of Christ's ministry. Now note carefully, though, in that description, what is our role in the gospel? Where are we mentioned in the gospel? There's only one place where we're actually mentioned in the gospel, and that is our sins. Jonathan Edwards said the only contribution we make to the gospel is the sin for which Christ died, right? But Jesus' role is to be the Redeemer, who at the climax of redemptive history, as the fulfillment of prophetic witness, came as the Messiah, and, and who sacrificed himself for our sins, who certainly died because he was buried in a tomb, and then was resurrected from the dead. We must be clear that the resurrection is inseparable from the gospel itself. And so now, sometimes some people want to do the kind of the question of like, well, which is more important, the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus? And I say, that's a bad question. It's a bad question. It's a pointless question. It's, uh, and so, um, you know, it's like saying, what's more important, justification or sanctification, right? And so it's like, what's more important? The engine for your car or the gas for your car? You're like, well, either way, you ain't going to run, go anywhere in it without one of them. So we can philosophize a bit and maybe, maybe you know, um, you know fine-tune some of our thinking. That's fine. We'll make those distinctions. Um, but it's not to say that one, we're not pitting them against each other. But, what, but we're simply saying that without the death, uh, because without the death of Christ, there is no need for resurrection, all right? And without the resurrection, uh, the death of Christ is pointless. And in, in both cases, if you pull one out of, the, out of the equation, then we're still in our sins and we're still under judgment. So there's no point in actually going into that question. Yet, there are many today who would like to redefine the gospel away from things like death and resurrection and just kind of make the gospel, you know, gospel just vaguely about love somehow. But Jesus didn't die on the cross to show us, you know, vague emotional sentiment or to affirm my insecurities. Jesus died on the cross because our sin deserves judgment He was buried because he truly died and because we face the grave. And he was raised for many reasons that we have yet to explore and we will. But in short, he was raised to vindicate his identity as the Savior and the Son of God. But also he was raised to bring life to his people, to bring resurrection to his people. That is why it is called good news. And this good news is certified by witnesses. In Paul's mind, the 
witness, and I find this really interesting. When Paul presents the gospel, he continues talking, and he includes the certification of the resurrection by witnesses as part of the gospel. And uh, because, because when, you, when scholars are looking at it, they're saying it's hard to know. When Paul says this is the gospel, it's hard to know when Paul stops defining the gospel because he keeps going and he keeps listing all the witnesses. At the, you know, so, and so he, he clearly uh, includes the witness of it, the historical witness of the resurrection as part of the gospel. <clears throat> so if this is all just simply an exercise in some ethereal vapor of spirituality then there would be no need for witnesses, no concern for truth or historicity. Yet Paul is clear that part of the gospel is that it actually happened and that the resurrection, which, as we talked about last week, would have been an incredibly hard sell in that culture, that the resurrection is witnessed no less than six times in these verses that he says. First, Cephas or Peter saw him. Then the 12 disciples saw him. Now this may be in a kind of saying the 12 disciples uh, saw him in, in, as individuals or groups and just kind of putting that together, or they saw him as a group. Both are recorded in the Gospels. Then he appeared no less to, to no less than 500 Christians, most of whom were alive at the time of Paul's writing, so thus they could be interrogated, questioned by the people he's writing to who are questioning resurrection. Fourth, uh, Jesus appeared to James, his, uh, what we like to call his half-brother. That's the strangest half-brother relationship to have, but that's what we call it um, because he is the, he's the son of the normal union by Mary and Joseph as opposed to the virgin birth. Fifth, uh, Jesus appeared to the apostles again. Instead of being called the twelve, they're called the apostles here. This, maybe this is the time where they, gave, they were given the Great Commission. We're not exactly, we're not entirely sure. Uh, Paul's not that specific. And then Paul adds the sixth one, which is his own uh, sighting of the resurrected Christ. Jesus appeared to Paul. Now, there's several points here that we need to consider about Jesus' appearance in his resurrected body to Paul. First, it is, it is what is recorded and described in Acts chapter 9. And, other, and then as Paul retells it twice later on in the book of Acts. Now, what's interesting here is that this is the only recorded, uh, recorded um, uh, appearance of the resurrected Christ after his ascension into heaven. And Paul says this is the last appearance of the resurrected Christ. Period. Because last of all, that essentially... Paul was the last in a sequence of appearances with no more to be expected. We don't expect Jesus to be appearing bodily here and there and everywhere. Okay? Um, that's why we don't expect it, because Paul was the last one. And so Paul recognizes how odd this is, um, and, and his ministry was odd. He was the 13th apostle. Because the 12 apostles largely focused on Jews and Samaritans who were converting to Christianity and joining the church, whereas Paul was, uh, was considered to be and called explicitly by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul notes that his calling is odd uh, because his particular unworthiness 
is due to the fact that he is the only apostle who persecuted the church, which he, knows, which he now so zealously serves. But then Paul brings it all back in in verse 10 to the heart of the matter. That what he is, that he is a witness with his own eyes to the work that God has done in his own soul by the grace of God. And that is what these witnesses are. They are witnesses to the powerful grace of God at work through the resurrection of Jesus. <coughs> now, in the ancient world, apostles, um, it, well, in, in the ancient world, uh, they tended to value in um, logical arguments and rhetoric above eyewitness testimony. But both were essentially the top two standards in, in court. And when it comes to eyewitness um, testimony, I mean, this is the basis of, I mean, the, the apostles presented both. They presented both arguments and, as John said in 1 John, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have touched with our own hands, that we proclaim to you, is how he opens up his first letter. Now, Charles Hodge, the old Princeton theologian, he lays out four criteria for, uh, for um, eyewitness testimony. And he says, look, if you're going to have eyewitnesses testifying to something, then the first thing is uh, it, the thing must be able to be proven to be known. It can't be people saying, well, we saw the invisible unicorn and you can't see him because we can see him. You know, it's like, no, it actually has to been able to, uh, something that can be proven, something that could be known by its very nature. And bodily resurrection would be one of those things. You can't have eyewitness testimony to a spiritual resurrection. And so it has to be something that can be known. The witness must also be given an opportunity to consider the truthfulness of what they saw. They need to be think about it. Did I really see what I saw? You know, that kind of thing. And then the witnesses also must be of sound body and mind. Right? They can't be of ill health, ill mental health. Um, you know, they need to be able to be, uh, be healthy mentally, physically, uh, to be solid witnesses. And then finally, witnesses must be pers- of persons of integrity. You know, they can't be con men or liars. Like, why would we trust them? And so as Hodge goes on to say, he says, look, if all these criteria are met, then you'd, and especially if you have multiple witnesses of these types of witnesses saying the same thing, well, there's no reason to doubt their testimony. He says, but even take that and add to the following, add to that the following, that these witnesses gave testimony often at great personal cost, some of them even at the cost of their own lives, their own blood. Witnesses observe something further that was predicted centuries beforehand in the scriptures. Third, that's adding to this, that this occurrence, the resurrection, produced effects that are otherwise unaccounted for, that we can't explain why things happen the way they do, except for the resurrection, like the rapid advance of the church in the world. And then finally, he says that when God confirms the event through the demonstration of his own spirit, he says, look, if you take regular criteria for eyewitness testimony and you add all of that to it, he said at that point, to not believe in the resurrection would either be crazy or wicked or both. But what we should note here, and for our purpose today, is that the historical veracity, the reality, the truth 
of the death and resurrection of Christ is part of the gospel. And this pushes against any kind of hyper-spiritualization of the gospel that moves into the territory of vague platitudes about being nice to one another or the universality of love and sacrifice. No, what the gospel is about is about a, it's not a Hallmark card. You know, it's, it is about a man named Jesus who is the Messiah, who was predicted by the scriptures, and who did die for our sins, who was buried for us, and who was raised from the dead for us. That is the gospel. It's amazing. It is incredible. And so God gave us many witnesses such that we are without excuse that we deny it. And thus, Paul says, the resurrection is of first importance. The resurrection is a necessary component of the gospel. It is part of the whole of the good news that Paul says he delivered as of first importance. He gave to the Corinthians and even to us today that which he received from Christ himself. The declaration, the good news of salvation and the grace of God. And so Paul says in verse 11 that it doesn't matter really who preached it. It doesn't matter. He says whether it's I or they, whether it was me or Peter or John or James, it doesn't matter. It matters that the gospel was preached. You think of where he says in Philippians, where he says there are people out there that are preaching the gospel because they hope that it's go- by doing it, they do it with bad motives because they're trying to do it to stir up trouble for me in prison. They're trying to make problems for me. But he says, you know what, though? They're the suckers because they're actually preaching the gospel, right? But then in Galatians, he goes off in Galatians 1. Why? Because they had corrupted the gospel. And so they, you had Christians who had corrupted the gospel through false teachers. And he, Paul lays the lumber into them. Whereas in Philippians, he celebrates false teachers or, to, or people with bad motives unbelievers who are preaching the gospel to get him in trouble because he's like, hey, at least the gospel's getting out there and I have unbelievers preaching the good news because the gospel is what matters, not necessarily the one who proclaims it. It was the gospel that was preached, the gospel that was believed, and the gospel that saves Now, I get that I may not have to work too hard this morning to get you all to believe that the resurrection is true or important. But what I want us to see is the vital place that the resurrection of Christ has in the good news of salvation. You cannot tell the gospel without it, it's a story without an ending, without conclusion, that doesn't resolve the problem. Of the story. The gospel ranks in importance above church officers, even above the importance of the apostles. The constant shining light of the church has always been and will always be the death of Christ for our sin, his burial in the tomb, his resurrection on the third day. For this is the good news of the grace of God for sinners. And for us, 
And it happened. It's true. And next week, we'll look and begin to explore why that matters so very, very much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus, we have a resurrected Savior. We don't have someone standing by to give us some advice or just a pat on the back, to just kind of shrug his shoulders when we go through sorrows and say, sorry, I can't help you, I wish I could. But that we have one who has experienced sorrow and suffering, who's experienced cruelty and evil, the hands of men. A Savior who knows what it is to be buried in a tomb, to die, who identifies with his people in the grave. But we have a Savior who has overcome the grave. And therefore, we have good news to receive, good news to believe, good news to share. And so, Lord, we pray that when we think of the gospel today, we would think not only of the dreadful cost of our sin that required the blood of our Savior to pay for it, but that when we think of the gospel, we would also think of the victory over the grave, the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ, that not only is forgiveness for our sin given to us by faith in His name, but resurrection is promised to us by faith in His name also. And so, Father, we pray that we would rejoice in the gospel of grace, that you would bring us back to the basics, bring us back to your goodness and love in Jesus. And, Lord, may we rejoice even in the midst of sorrow and hardship, when we endure problems in the church, when we do in problem, enduring problems and struggles in our lives, may we be reminded of that one thing, the gospel that was preached, the gospel we received, the gospel in which we stand, the gospel that is saving us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.